Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is bone health and osteoporosis. Very, very serious stuff. We're gonna we're gonna talk very seriously today. Not not seriously at all, actually. So we're here with Dana in studio, and we're also talking with an expert clinical pharmacist who works in an endocrinologist practice about bone health and bone medications and supplements and all of the stuff in between. If you can't get enough of us, though, from our podcast, visit us at woodstockvitamins.com. We've got lots of great content there. We're on social media, Facebook and Instagram, we're Woodstock Vitamins. On Twitter, we're at WoodstockVTS. That name stinks. we got to fix that for sure. And also, if you want to see this face that's made for radio, visit our webinar page, woodstockvitamins.com slash webinar. Every month, we do a free webinar on a health-related topic. We've talked about CBD, leaky gut, and this month's topic is throw away your multivitamins. So check Check that out. And let's now get into the show where we talk about bone health. So Dana, I have a bone to pick with you. Oh, oh God, that's just too funny, isn't it? Bone, bone health, bone to pick. So no. funny. It's so funny. So funny. Whatever. I got it. And I think my audience will enjoy the pun that I used, but whatever. <laughs> so the talk today is osteoporosis, bone health. And if people are, are worried about optimizing their wellness as they should be and using therapies to prevent disease in like in a holistic manner, bone health is a big one. Like it's mm-hmm. one actually though that's like not considered very often. A lot of people, like do you think about your bone health on a daily basis? Well, I do, but that's wow. because... Wow, <laughs> look at you. Just totally knocking down my setup. Thanks, no, I appreciate I'm, it. I know, I know. I'm, I'm terrible at this. Um, <laughs> well, my my Nana had osteoporosis, and in my lifetime, I saw her get shorter and shorter, and it wasn't just because I was getting taller. So for yes. me personally, it is a concern, but I would imagine people don't think about it. They probably just think about being hot. Right. Okay, yes, yeah. And like on Instagram and how many followers they have. That's what everybody's concerned about these days. But that brings up uh, the point that I'd like to make, is that we consider it a disease of the elderly, but the only benefit that you know the elderly have with this disease, the only thing that they can really do for us is to be the ghost of Christmas future, mm. to be like, yo, this is a problem. Mm. Uh, I don't know if your grandmother talks like that, but that is the, the thing. So <laughs> what I tell people is that the best thing that you can do for your bone health starts when you're 20. Um, oh, and that young. Yeah, yeah. The, the the way that it works is that our bone density peaks at around 30 for women. Oh, boy. Yeah, and then for men, it's around 40. But there's already a difference between men and women because of testosterone and our bigger bones and, and that. So we have a larger bone density, and we don't also have menopause, which is where estrogen just completely falls out, and then which is helping build women's bones and then cause this huge sloughing of, of bone density. So we have to consider... All of the things that we can do to build up our bones to the most uh, dense that they can be while we're young. So that way we have a lower risk of osteoporosis, which is a risk of your bones breaking when we're older. Interesting. So the thing is, is that when we're older, if we haven't done that, there are still things that we can do 
to slow that process, to make that process better. And they are mostly holistic options. Um, but um, we, I want to have like a real kind of discussion around the whole topic. So I'm glad that you're hip to it. So that'll make this a little bit easier for me. So if I may, can mm-hmm. I rant for a moment? Please. Okay, cool. So when you look at bone health on the internet, I personally just want to bang my head against the wall. All of these like quacks and practitioners are stressing the importance of micronutrients and, and almost telling people that using vitamins and supplements is more important than medications. Uh, and that may be right in some situations, and we'll kind of cover all of that. But they they stress the importance of micronutrients. Then they disagree, you know, from one blog to the next about which micronutrients are are important and what dose you should be taking. And it's insanely confusing for people. And osteoporosis is something that's actually managed pretty um, easily. You know, uh, we have a pretty uh, defined treatment algorithm, and and we know what to do with different types of people that are suffering from different levels of disease. So uh, it's just really frustrating to me to see that kind of a thing. But because the truth is, is that all of that stuff, vitamins are important, nutrition is very important, but it's, it's all of it. It's not just one thing. It's, it's lifestyle things and it's, um, the micronutrients, but the most important thing is the prevention. And and they don't really stress that a lot. They, they, they sell the idea that you can stop osteoporosis or reverse osteoporosis when you're 70 with calcium supplements, which is definitely not true. It Uh, seems like you would want to be taking those supplements much earlier. I mean, obviously you've already said 20, mm -hmm. but you know, say for me, if my bone density peaked, uh, at 30, which I am well past 30. Yeah. Um, th- it seems like I should definitely, I mean, I do take supplements, but if I didn't, I would want to start taking now to build that bone density back up. Right. Yeah. And we'll talk about that specific piece, that idea of what can a supplement do? Um, you know, just, uh, to direct people towards the blog, because I wrote a piece on this, that's pretty popular with patients and even doctors alike. Ooh. And it's called calcium doesn't work. And it talks about how calcium is not uh, something that we think uh, it is, which, which means like something that builds our bones at a certain point. So when we're younger, it's definitely going to help us build healthy bones. But after a certain point, the best it's going to do is slow our bone loss. And it kind of goes into a lot of the things that we'll talk about here. But it's really good to kind of see it on paper. So I'll just kind of throw that out there. The, you know, the, the other truth uh, that I like to rant uh, against is that the, the claims that these guys are making um, they're largely unfounded, right? So the supplements that are out there really aren't that great. And what they're doing is they're, again, trying to sell the mentality. So it's drugs versus natural products. Uh, it's my method for bone health versus, you know, the established methods. So supplements may be needed and, but there are so many more important considerations that we have to talk. So, uh, talk about, so let's first talk about boring Statistics. You want to talk about that? Let's do some boring stuff. Please. All right. Great. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this. (laughs) So osteoporosis. So everybody's on the same page of what osteoporosis actually is, is it's a risk for fracture. That's all it is. So osteoporosis is is telling you how, what is your risk for a fracture in 10, 10 years, right? So it's not saying that you're dying. It's not saying that there's something wrong. It's saying that you have a, a higher risk of, of breaking a bone in, at some point. Osteopenia is the kind of the warning time before that. 
And what they do is they compare you at your age to somebody at peak bone mass to, you know, in your gender. And they say, okay, well, you're uh, compared to a 30 year old, you're kind of falling off the wagon, you know? (laughs) And uh, so you have to be careful. Hey, uh, keep an eye on this. And then if you go into that osteoporosis range, okay, now you're at a severe risk for fracture. And a lot of people look at me and go, well, I don't care. Like I can break a bone and and deal with it, but that's not necessarily true. Um, Hundreds of thousands of people end up a a year in, in the hospital for hip fractures. And as a clinical pharmacist that worked with geriatric patients in a nursing home, this is the one statistic that always stuck with me, is that if you're over 80, the risk is anywhere between 1% and 10% of dying in the first year after a hip fracture. Holy crap. So like a 10% risk of dying because you broke a bone is insane to me, right? And the that risk is the highest within three months. Um, 6% of women over like age 80 um, can have a risk of dying uh, from breaking a bone. That's nuts. It's it's insane. So uh, it is something that we, so we have to take it seriously, and we have to um, we we have to not uh, poo poo uh, the advice of physicians because remember with a wellness pyramid, it's the stuff that we do, the stuff that we supplement, and then the docs uh, have to be involved. So we have to kind of take all of that in con- into consideration. But a lot like what we talk about with heart health, it's really based on the person. So um, you know if you're Family history is huge for heart attacks, and you've even you've had a heart attack yourself, and you're you know you're all clogged up. Then yeah, you're going to need a drug to help you out. You're not going to be able to smoothie that one away. You know you're <laughs> going to have to do something. Same thing with osteoporosis. So there's a responsible way to do this. So I'm not saying that everybody has to take medications, but I'm saying that you'd have to be uh, understanding of where you fit into the whole picture. So um, osteoporosis, uh, you know, it's caused by a lot of things, but basic there's things that can cause it, but then it's just kind of a natural process too. So there's a lot of, there's a big genetic component. It was almost a, it's also a race component too. Hmm. So like small white women are going to have a much higher risk than a lot of the other populations and genders and such. Hmm. Um, if you have kidney disease, if you smoke, uh, steroids, anti-seizure meds, all of these things can, can call it, uh, cause osteoporosis. So it's something to look out for. Um, so what can we do to stop our bones from breaking, not uh, play football. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the first piece. Um, it really depends on when I think is the most important thing. So if we are talking, uh, let's talk from the perspective of you because sure. you're sitting here next to me. So you are a young lady. You are not in the 80 year old bracket, of course, but you're also past peak bone mass. So what can you do today to help you out with this? So one of the big things that everybody talks about is weight bearing exercise. Mm-hmm. So weight-bearing exercise is uh, something that uh, helps with the bone density by improving the muscles and the bones themselves through repetitive motion. So uh, squats, lunges, lifting weights, doing the the little thing at the gym where you're pushing the weight and, and trying not to snap your knees. All of those kinds of things are <laughs> beneficial for um, your overall bone health, and, and they can tremendously help out. Um, the... The big thing, though, that everybody talks about is the micronutrients. So calcium is the first thing that almost everybody would probably think of when they think about bone health and, and, and bone disease prevention. And that's true because our bones are like 90% calcium. Um, there's other things that are involved, of course. There's um, uh, you know proteins and, and uh, other micronutrients. There's about 19, if any, that are involved in the health of the bone. Mm-hmm. They're specialized cells. One of the things I always like to do is knock on counters and such to make big, big noises for your car windows to, to break. But, yeah, listeners love that. <laughs> but, but 
we think our bones are like that, uh, some hard uh, static thing. But in fact, they're very dynamic. There are cells that are building bones and there are cells that are um, like leaching bones, um, all to maintain a level of calcium in the blood. And um, that's an important concept to understand because those are two points of attack, right? So if your bones are weak, we can build them up, but then we can also stop them from leaching. And mm. so when we use something like calcium, we're trying to give more building blocks to the cells that are building the bones. Um, but at a certain point in our lives, the leaching overwhelms uh, that ability to, to build the bones up. And that's why calcium doesn't work. At some point, the loss of bone from those cells is going to be much more dramatic than the building process. Is there an age that that's generally the case? Yeah, menopause. You know, like as, like as soon as you hit menopause, that's pretty much a, a, a dramatic downhill turn from there for most people. And men, it's about 10, 10 years later, you know, mm. uh, where, but it's not as dramatic and as uh, like fast as, as with women. So, um, so the, the idea of calcium and, and what it can do, we have to remember that is that it's just supplying building blocks for the bone. And, and this is an important concept about what calcium is. So our body's goal is to keep the blood level of calcium consistent. It's not to build bones. It's not to have the calcium used somewhere else. It's just to keep the blood level consistent, if to simplify it, right? right. So if the blood level of calcium goes down, where do we get calcium from? Well, I mean, do you mean like uh, actually eating calcium-rich foods? Right. So our, our, our body would say, hey, let's, let's absorb more calcium from our food. So it'll actually use vitamin D actually to, to cause more calcium to be absorbed into the, into the blood. So it turns on a hormone pathway that activates vitamin D, which, and vitamin D's role in the body is to help calcium get absorbed into the blood. From this the, sounds from the like stomach. you want me to go outside in the summertime and have some ice cream. I would. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. That's such a great recommendation. Go outside, get the vitamin D, mm -hmm. and have ice cream. I'm a genius. Oh, my God. You just totally patented our new method. So if you just spend your summer outside eating ice cream, you'll have no bone disease. I but you'll have it. diabetes. But besides that, you know. It's always something. So, so we're going to get calcium from our diet. The other th place that we're going to get calcium from is the bones. So if our calcium levels in our blood is too low, then that means that it, we're going to, body's going to say, hey, we need more calcium in the blood. So let's take it from the storage site, which is the bones. And that's a bad thing. Mm. So maintaining the level of calcium in the blood is important. And that's why dietary calcium intake is such a stressed thing, is if you don't have enough calcium in your blood, it'll pull from the bones. Okay, so for people who are allergic or intolerant of dairy, what do you recommend? Faux show. It is difficult to get calcium from your diet if you are not a dairy person. Dairy will have somewhere between two and 400 milligrams per serving of calcium. The thing about dietary absorption of calcium is that it can be very erratic, especially from non-dairy sources. Mm -hmm. So you can get it from vegetables. So the biggest ones are like spinach and Swiss chard and stuff like that. But you're only going to be getting like 100 to 200 milligrams. And calculating that is kind of wonky because it's like, is it cooked or uncooked? And how much am I really ingesting? Mm -hmm. So Plantasauruses uh, will be uh, exposed to less dietary calcium. Um you know, nuts, fruits, they will have uh, calcium, but you'd have to eat like a cup of kiwi 
right? <laughs> that's like $50, right? <laughs> I mean, that doesn't sound terrible, but I think my tongue great. would start to itch after a while. <laughs> well, you have to take the, the, the coating off of it. You can't, you can't just have the skin. That, that's, of course, well, I know. Why well, maybe I'm allergic to kiwi because <laughs> eventually it makes my tongue feel weird. The figs are another uh, source of fruits, but who wants to eat a cup of figs? Not Fig Newton's figs. Um, <laughs> Tofu is a rich source. If you wanted to have tofu, I have a little bit of a beef with tofu as such a primary source of protein for people just because of the soy content and mm. how the effects that that can have. But um, that is uh, something that you can do. Um, there are some foods that are fortified with calcium. So breakfast cereals, not, they're not healthy, but that is a true thing. And like sesame seeds, if you had, again, if you had a whole ounce of sesame seeds. So um, those are th- places that you can get calcium from to make sure that you're getting enough in your body into the blood to make sure that you're not leaching from your bones. You're not speeding up this bone density loss. Mm. Um, how much do you need is the the next big question. And that depends on your age. So if you're a youngin uh, under 18, it's pretty much 1300 milligrams or so. Uh, but as you age, that number goes up. So um, most women are going to need around 1,200 milligrams after menopause um, and about that if, if they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then most men are like kind of hover around 1,000 milligrams. There are specific recommendations, of course, and we can point people to those in, in, in a more comprehensive manner. But that's just like a back of the napkin kind of you're, you should be approximately here. Um, one of the things that I'd like to say to people is that I think the NIH National Institute of Health says only about 40% of us get our calcium goals for the day. Wow. So that stinks, right? So yeah. most of us aren't getting what we need, and especially not when we're younger, uh, when we should be getting it. We seem to do a really good job with dairy intake and calcium intake when we're real little, but then it just kind of tapers off as we age. So that ends up being an issue. So calcium supplementation looks is like what people look to, right? So let's take calcium supplements. And so calcium supplements are one of the things that I rant the most about because I, I don't like what options we have out there. So first thing we should know about calcium supplements is that the form matters. So uh, let's put this in another way. So calcium doesn't exist by itself uh, in, uh, in nature. So calcium always has to be bound to or stuck to something in order for it to be stable. So you will go to the store and there will be lots of different types of calcium, calcium carbonate, calcium citrate, um, calcium oxalate, calcium lactate. There's all these different forms and the form will dictate how much will get absorbed into the blood and how much will stay in the gut. Hmm. All right. So. Well, that's, that's interesting that they would, you know, mix it with so many things. Wouldn't it just be the one that is absorbed the best? Right. Um, there's cost to consider. Mm. Right. And and that's the nature of the supplement industry is that you might see a bottle that on the front says calcium, but we are not considering these kinds of things. If I swallow something, is that the same thing as it actually getting into my blood? Right. Right. And the form of drugs, for example, will dictate this very thing, how they get absorbed and like how deeply they get absorbed. There is an antihistamine that has one form. It's a hydrochloride form. And so when you take that antihistamine, it stops itchiness. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if you bond that same drug to the pamoate form, it'll actually cross the blood brain barrier, which is like the the biggest wall Mm -hmm. uh, that we have and cause sedation. So just by changing the thing that something's bound to can completely change the properties of it. So when we're looking at calcium, the biggest property that gets changed is its absorption, its absorbability into the bloodstream. So the thing about 
the forms is like calcium carbonate, calcium citrate. Those are the two most common forms of calcium, and I actually don't recommend either one of them. Uh, one first from a therapeutic standpoint, it seems that they don't really do much for bone density anyway. So most people that take it, they seem to still lose bone density at the same rate as somebody that's t- doing nothing. Hmm. Um, and depending on the study, sometimes they show like a slight bump uh, with calcium citrate, for example. Sometimes they show a slight loss or they're holding. Uh, but most of the the bigger pieces kind of show that calcium doesn't work. Like I said, it, it just kind of like move moves out. So, but the other thing is like just the chemistry evolved with it. So calcium carbonate is found in Tums, like mm-hmm. that's what that active ingredient is, and sidewalk chalk. That's oh. what calcium carbonate is. It's, oh, it's... is that why people crave it? <laughs> what? You no. crave rocks? No, no, no. You know those people who have like the weird cravings and there's like a show about it, like My Strange Addiction or oh, whatever? That's funny. A lot of people crave chalk. Really? Yeah. Maybe it's a calcium deficiency or they could be goofy. I that's... don't know. Uh, either or. Yeah. I mean, uh, maybe is it just the yellow chalk or is there, is, is there like flavors? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, it's that's not a it's not a, a too many highs, not enough lows in, in the in the flavor of the calcium right. chalk. Um, so the the calcium chalk thing is a real thing. So we're taking something that's in this practically inabsorbable rock material and then introducing it to our bodies uh, and then thinking that it's going to go and, and do stuff. And like, the dairy form of calcium is a calcium carbonate at times uh, because the animals are eating all of the stuff, the dirt and the grass and everything. So they're getting calcium carbonate. So, so we're getting a lot of that. Um, uh, the, the real th- weird thing about calcium carbonate is that um, calcium carbonate is Tums, right? That's right. what I just said. So Tums is an antacid. It's, it lowers the acid levels in the stomach. So when you, calcium carbonate goes in the stomach, it lowers the acid level. Calcium carbonate needs acid to get absorbed into the bloodstream. So that's weird, right? So the drug stops the acid that it needs to get into the bloodstream. So calcium it's carbonate itself will lower its own absorption. That is ironic. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Thanks, Alanis Morissette. <laughs> the, uh, so I don't prefer calcium carbonate. It is cheap. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And calcium carbonate comes in lots of different uh, shades to fool you, to make you think that it is something that it is not. Um, Algecal. Oh yeah, algae calcium. This is calcium from uh, coral reefs, so it's it's all oh, calcium. Oh no, that's what I take. Uh, it's calcium carbonate. Ah, uh, no, you lose. So damn. yeah, so uh, it makes it sound like it's something that it's not. That it's something. Oh, this corals have structure. That that sounds good. Yeah, well, rocks do as well. So um, there's also some data now that says that calcium carbonate has been associated and calcium citrate have been associated with heart disease risk. Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> even uh, heart attacks. Um, and one of the thought is, is that it's the wrong form. So it seems to be like if it if there's too much of it, it falls out of the blood and into the soft tissues. So then it hardens the blood vessels in like the hearts and the kidneys. Um, so, and that makes a ton of sense to me uh, that that's a problem. So, but that's dictated not just on the form. That's also dictated on the dose because with anything too much of a good thing is, is a bad thing. So, um, we just said that most women need about 1200 milligrams of calcium. And what ended up happening was that a lot of people were taking like 1500 milligrams in their supplements for some reason, because they wanted to just overshoot it. Um, so 1500 milligrams in their supplements isn't, uh, considering what they're eating in their diet. And 
this is the most important thing I tell everybody about the dosing of supplements. Supplements are to supplement what's missing from your diet. So if the goal for the day is 1,200 milligrams and you're getting 600 from your foods, you need only 600 milligrams, not 1,500, which is over the guidelines anyway. So imagine most people were taking well over what we would consider the upper upper limit or, or tolerable limit and over a lifetime, because this is a, a lifetime uh, thing, you're going to have accumulation of this bad form of calcium. So with calcium supplementation, it's about finding the right form and it's about making sure that you're getting just the dose that you need based on your diet. And again, it can be a little bit over. So if you were getting a total of 1500 milligrams, you know, a couple days a week, that's fine because some days are going to be a little bit below. So, um, the idea is on average, you'd be getting about the 1200 milligrams every, every day, uh, if you're a woman. So the, the form that we recommend the most is the calcium hydroxy appetite. And the reason that we do that is because calcium hydroxy appetite is, is bone. Um, so it comes from bone, so it is not a vegan product, uh, but hydroxyapatite is like an amino acid complex that's like rich in phosphorus and such that our bones are actually made of. And it seems to be the more bioavailable form of calcium, so most of it isn't staying in the gut. Because that's the thing to remember is that if your body doesn't absorb it, where does it go? It goes down the tube, your intestines. And calcium in the intestines causes water to leach out. So uh, then your stools become drier and drier. It can cause constipation. So one of the GI side effects besides just irritation from those forms is constipation. And that's also a problem in somebody that's over 65. If you're a young 65 versus an older 65, that, that's a big difference. But constipation becomes a serious thing at that age. So we don't want to introduce something that, that would do that. So preferably, of course, I would say eat your, eat your calcium uh, and start young. So Dana, that's what I would say to you is make sure that you're getting enough calcium. So take a look at your diet, write down what you eat on a normal daily basis, what an average day looks like, and then figure out what that calcium number is approximately. That's going to be normally an overstatement of, of what it really is. And then supplement just to that point and use the better forms of calcium. Um, the calcium hydroxy appetite seems to be the one that slows bone density the uh, loss the most. So it, it, again, calcium in that form, which is the more bioavailable form, still won't build your bones. And that's what everybody thinks is that calcium after a certain point, I can take that supplement to help my bone density get bigger. And it does not. Calcium doesn't work like that. Calcium helps us build our bones up to peak bone mass. But after that point, it's just maintaining bone density levels as they are at best. Can you explain what each of those words in the title means? Because especially appetite, that's a weird name. Hydroxy appetite. Yeah. yeah, that is a weird name. Yeah. So, um, so that doesn't really mean anything. So, hydroxy appetite is literally just the thing. That's the compound. That's that's what that's called in the body. Is that what you're is that what you're saying? Or I, yeah, may, maybe I'm asking like where even it came from. But where does it come from? Yeah. The name? I yeah. don't know Latin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the that's the name of the the complex and um, the, uh, the it comes from bone like that's the source where again calcium carbonate is coming from rocks and such. Oh, uh, okay, know. I got gotcha. you. So yeah. calcium hydroxyapatite is coming from uh, bones. It's also known as like microcrystalline hydroxyapatite or calcium MCHA. Uh, those are other other terms uh, for calcium uh, hydroxyapatite. Again, in, yeah, in my opinion, and then if you are a vegan and you want a form like calcium lactate is a good form, I would guess. Um, you know, even if you did use calcium citrate, it's not a bad number two, but calcium carbonate is just straight out. You know, don't don't use that at all. So um, then the other micronutrient that comes up a lot is magnesium. 
And in the natural products world, this is where I start to like pull my rapidly receding hairline out. The (laughs) magnesium is important to bone density for sure, but it's not as important as everybody's making it out to be. Whereas they're saying that you need to take more magnesium than you really need. So how much magnesium do we need on a daily basis? It's very simple. Most men need about 400 milligrams. Most women need about 300 milligrams. That's it, right? And if you compare that to the calcium intake, it's, you know, for women, that's about four to one. And for men, it's about like three to one. Okay. That's the ratio of normal recommended clinical data. This is what we need to have a healthy body kind of thing. These people out there on the internet are saying you need two to one or one to one of calcium and magnesium intake, which is, is crazy to me. So, and there's a couple of reasons why one, it's not based on any evidence. I tried to look into this for one of my customers who said, um, Neil, I heard that two to one calcium to magnesium is the ratio that you need for bone health. You know, is that true? And we looked and looked and looked and we didn't find anything in the data. We just found one naturopath that made it up, you know, and she basically said, I think that this is the best for cramps. Uh, so everybody should have a two to one ratio. And then that's what everybody's been going with since then. Interesting. It's really crazy because, the, again, the, the more natural ratio, the, the ratio that we really need is closer to four to one for most people, most women at least. Um, the, so we recommending two to one or even one to one seems a little bit irresponsible. The other thing is like calcium and magnesium theoretically are absorbed through the same places in the gut. So if they're taken on top of each other at such high doses, there may be some absorption problems where they're fighting for the, the door, trying to fit two, two fat guys through a door, you know, like <laughs> they have to like what, let their body go through first or whatever. Um, the, the big thing with magnesium is the same thing as calcium, the form matters. So if, if we're using magnesium, what gets absorbed into the blood is going to be dictated by what the magnesium molecule is bound to, because magnesium is a mineral and doesn't exist freely uh, in nature. It has to be stuck to something else. So there are two major forms of uh, magnesium that a lot of people uh, have access to. One of them is magnesium oxide, and the other is magnesium citrate. And those are very naturally occurring magnesiums. But if you look at what drugs those things are contained in, you would probably not want to use it. Again, the goal here is to get the magnesium into the blood to then help out with our bone health, if that's what our goal is, right? Uh, the, the thing about magnesium oxide, it is the active ingredient in Philips milk of magnesia. Why do you take that? Because you're constipated. So the whole point of that product is to keep the magnesium in the tube, in the gut, to get to the colon, which works in the opposite way of calcium and attracts water into the gut, which then causes <laughs> you to have diarrhea. We talk about diarrhea all the time around here. So, so <laughs> magnesium is a laxative, especially in the oxide form. And magnesium citrate is that clear liquid stuff that comes in the glass jar at the pharmacies. That's what people are taking and putting into their body, thinking that it's going to get absorbed into the blood. So the form of magnesium really, really matters. So um, the forms of magnesium that I recommend are amino acid chelates, so chelated magnesium. Um, the product that you know we, we have is called Easy Magnesium, just to make it easier for people. But those chelates have better absorption of the magnesium into the blood over the, um, the magnesium citrate and magnesium oxide with less of the GI irritation and side effects that go along with those other things. So the form really, really matters. Um, foods of worth uh, that have magnesium, so most are way less than 100 milligrams per serving, but like almonds, nuts, and spinach are the richest. So if you take the 
calcium stuff we just talked about and then this magnesium thing, you can see really quickly that if you incorporate nuts and spinach and greens into your diet, you're going to be getting lots of bone healthy foods, especially as we go to vitamin K, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, that's also found in those foods. So the just having a healthy diet is more than enough to help out with our, our bones, but we just have to make sure that we're hitting those goals that we need for the, for the, each day. Interesting. Nice, right? You ready to talk about sunshine? Uh, maybe. I do have an anecdote about magnesium. Do it. Um, so years ago, uh, over 10 years ago, I used to use Nair on my upper legs, which I know is not good for you, but I, whatever, was doing it at the time. And I heard that if you take magnesium and calcium together, mm-hmm. the calcium absorbs better. So I did start taking it for a week. And so that week goes by and I go to use the nair on my legs and I got a really bad chemical burn. Really? And I don't know why, like, I, I don't know the, the chemistry of that. So there's but I two know that... really important things there. So you're using nair on your legs, which is hilarious. And then two. The... <laughs> Upper legs. I was shaving the lower ones. <laughs> the, uh, the, the point that you just made that's like kind of in there that we need to pull out is that you heard that calcium and magnesium, say that again. Calcium and magnesium. Calcium the... helps magnesium get absorbed. No, 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 the other way around. I'm sorry. The magnesium helps the calcium get absorbed. And because I was taking calcium, so, and this was back when I didn't research as much. So the only thing that was different in my life was that I was now taking magnesium and it caused the chemical burn burn. with the nair. Which could have been coinky dink. But the the more important thing that I hear here is that the, she heard, because all of this is just hearsay. You know, magnesium, yeah. yeah, magnesium increases calcium. Magnesium has minimal impact on calcium absorption. Vitamin D is the biggest thing that has impact on calcium absorption. And if anything, there may be a theoretical interaction between magnesium and calcium where they block each other from getting absorbed. Right. And that's the way the natural products industry works, man. It's it's crazy. So <laughs> I would like to state for the record that I do much more research now before I start taking the product. <laughs> you better. Uh, so the Magnesium's done. Let's talk about vitamin D. Vitamin D is another fun thing. So one of the the most fun things to know about vitamin D is that it's not a vitamin. Can you believe that? Vitamin D is actually a hormone. We found it as a vitamin because we people were getting rickets. So we found, oh, they weren't eating enough vitamin D-rich foods. It must be a vitamin. It's a nutritional thing. But then once we understood more about it, we realized that it's actually something that one part of our body makes and then secretes through the blood, and then it works in other parts of the body. So that makes it a hormone. Mm-hmm. So And vitamin D isn't one thing. It's an umbrella term for lots of different compounds in the body. The way that it works is that the, the skin has some vitamin D molecule that gets activated by sunlight and then goes into the bloodstream and then our kidney and our liver like turn it on they have to like both coordinate the the activation of vitamin d and then that active form of vitamin d then circulates and does what it's supposed to do on all all your different body parts predominantly the stomach increasing the absorption of calcium so that's Mm -hmm. that's vitamin d in a nutshell and the thing i hate about vitamin d is all of the misinformation about uh your vitamin d level that's been going on now so there's uh, a big money in testing. So uh, they developed a test around vitamin D levels. The vitamin D level testing is very interesting because it seems like most Americans ha- are deficient in vitamin D. Is that the cause of our problems or is it Facebook? I don't know. But we're trying really hard to get our vitamin D levels up. And, um, you know, if you look at the rest of the world, they're above about 50. Most Americans are like 30 or below which is pretty crazy, uh, 30 or below is almost getting into rickets land Ooh. where you can you know, have the, uh, that disease, which is not a very pretty thing to do. So we, we definitely wanna make sure that we're at what's considered normal. Uh, the, the piece here is that um, the test is expensive and you can just take vitamin D, right? If, if, you're num- if you're gonna take a test and it's gonna tell you you're low, 
then you're going to just take more. So like, why bother with the test, right? So we know that we don't have enough vitamin D because we're sedentary. We're not outside as much. And we don't eat a lot of fatty fish and vitamin D rich foods. So a lot of us are probably going to be deficient, especially because we live in America, which is at a certain point on the globe. So it has less intense sunlight. So all of these factors together, we're probably going to have low vitamin D. So taking a test is largely unnecessary unless we are supplementing with high amounts. We want to make sure we're not overdosed. So I tell people, don't even bother with the vitamin D test. Just take a little bit extra vitamin D with the help of a doctor or you know a pharmacist um, just to make sure that you're, you're getting a vitamin D level that is therapeutic um, uh, and you're doing it slowly because what ended up happening is so many people were megadosing it. So uh, we normally don't want people to use any more between uh, uh, more than like 7,000 units of vitamin D a day and people were taking 10 or you know like crazy crazy numbers. So Is there a downside to the overdose? Yeah, so over time you can die from vitamin D. I don't know if you wow. told this uh, you know this but I uh, I'm killing somebody with vitamin D currently. Oh, are you? Yes, actively. Um, one of our patients is an author, and he asked me to kill someone. And I gave him that idea to use vitamin D toxicity Ooh. over time. And uh, so you might be incorporating that. So that's pretty cool, right? The blood tests, if your level's over 50, you're good to go. If your level's over 125, you're in trouble. Uh, that's the the two numbers I tell people. I, I don't think it's necessary to get a blood test. I think you should just take some vitamin D. Uh, men, about 1,000 units a day. Women, about 2,000 units a day, uh, unless your, uh, if you're pregnant, it should be 2000 and non postmenopausal women could be less. It could be about a thousand units a day, but these recommendations of 5,000 units a day and getting your, your numbers over 80 or, or to hundred, that's not based on any actual evidence. And in fact, the evidence has shown it really doesn't do anything. Um, there is something interesting though, like, um, elderly patients in a nursing home, if you get their number numbers up, it actually stops like behaviors, misbehaviors, like biting and pinching and that kind of stuff. Oh, weird. Yeah, really cool stuff there. So that's a population where we would want to go, but they're also less active and definitely not outside as much. So well, I was just yeah. gonna say, do you think uh, it has it, it's something more along the lines of uh, where you said, um, maybe it was the last episode or two episodes ago, where it's just very important to turn off your devices and just go outside? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know. yeah, we we are inside all the time. I mean, I I'm the guy and I work 11 hours a day downstairs and <sighs> and like I get maybe half a day on Sunday off. So, like most of us are in these worlds where we're not getting a lot of uh, sun exposure. But again, the sun can kill us too. So most of right. us are using sunblock like mad. My kids look like Casper, each one of them, when we go to the beach or go outside because we don't want them to get sunburns and then the potential cancer risk from it. So even if we are going outside, most of us are using sunscreens and sunblocks. Um, so vitamin D, more to the supplement side of things, you can get vitamin D from three different sources. Two of them are not like animal friendly. They're, they're not vegan. So we have fish, so cod liver, you squeeze out the cod liver and you'll get vitamin D. And the other source is sheep's wool. So if you irradiate or, or shine a light basically on sheep's wool, it'll turn it into vitamin D. The other source is um, mushrooms or like algae, and that will take vitamin D and again, shine light on it and it'll turn it into vitamin D. Um, there are two different major types of vitamin D. There's uh, vitamin D2 and vitamin D3. Vitamin D2 is the plant form and vitamin D3 is the animal form. So both of them will work in humans. The thing is, is that vitamin D3 is more bioavailable, so we're absorbing more of it. And then the kinetics, meaning how our body handles vitamin D3 is better. Uh, 
So you can get away with once weekly dosing with vitamin D3. So a lot of people don't know that. You can take all your weekly vitamin D on Monday and be good for an entire week. Where if you did that with vitamin D2, it won't hold for more than a few days and the numbers will fall off. Interesting. But I tell people, don't even overthink this. Just vitamin D3 is the one that you want and just take it on a daily basis and, and it's very, very simple. And again, the numbers don't have to be super high unless you're truly deficient. If you're truly deficient, then your doctor will make a recommendation of what you want. And it's typically in the like 7,000 units a day range for 12 weeks. And then you go back down to the normal levels. So they just want to bump you up real quick and then bring you back down. There is uh, lots of different forms of vitamin D, soft gels, capsules, tablets, liquids. And I tell people avoid anything that has a powder in it. So tablets and capsules are not what you should use from vitamin D3 uh, because it actually has poor absorption. You want It naturally occurs in like a liquid, almost oil. So you want to use the liquid form that has much better absorption than uh, powdered forms. So if you have a calcium supplement that has vitamin D in it and it's a tablet, that's not a good form of vitamin D. I tell people to keep their vitamin D separate from their other bone health uh, nutrients because you want to, one, adjust the dose of vitamin D based on who you are and where you are at with your levels, and two, you don't want it to be a powder form or mix with powders because it won't be as absorbable. We have lots of different um, articles about it. One of my favorite things that I uh, talked about in one of the blogs about vitamin D is cod liver oil supplements, which is something that I'm sure everybody's running to the store to get because it just sounds so delicious. But the <laughs> cod liver oil supplements are omega-3s, good uh, fats, uh, and then they have vitamin A and they have vitamin D. That's pretty much the three things that they're known for. The vitamin D that's found in cod liver oil supplements is actually the sheep's wool stuff. Huh. <laughs> so what they do is they squeeze the cod liver out. They take that vitamin D that goes into vitamin D supplements that are from fish, right? And then the cod liver oil that's left, they put the vitamin D from sheep's wool to make sure that the number is consistent. So that way they can make sure that they're getting the right dose because naturally occurring vitamin D can be variable. So isn't that crazy? That's so ancient to me. Like taking cod liver oil was like the punishment to every kid in like every Julie Andrews movie. Oh my God. <laughs> Any time that um, I mention liquid fish oil in anybody from that generation, they shudder. Yeah. And, and I'm like, it's not, it's not the same thing. It's, it's much, <laughs> much cleaner than it was before. So let's talk about vitamin K and let's make this a little bit quicker because I got two important things. I got something new I'm going to drop on you, Dana. It's going to be awesome. You're going to love it. I'm so excited. So excited. So uh, first thing, uh, if you're not getting enough vitamin K, your bones will suck. That's the connection of vitamin K and bones. There is really uh, very little data saying if you get more than enough vitamin K that your bones will be better. Mm -hmm. All right. And a lot of people are looking at vitamin K. Oh, I want to take vitamin K for my bones. And that's a good thought because it is kind of hard to get vitamin K from your diet because we don't eat a lot of greens. And vitamin K found in foods is very, uh, has very low absorption. So we, we, you might eat like three servings of spinach, but the amount of vitamin K that your body is actually absorbing into the blood is kind of low. So Taking a vitamin K supplement is something I can get behind for people that are fit into that category. You want to make sure that the vitamin K thing isn't influencing how healthy your bones are. A lot of people think that vitamin K will build your bones because it's a prescription in other countries. Uh, vitamin K has been studied in some of the Asian countries, and it's a drug. But the thing that people forget is that the drug dose is a thousand times the dose that you would get as a supplement in America. And that's kind of a big deal. That's kind mm -hmm. of a big difference. So the vitamin... So it's like the Ron Burgundy <laughs> supplements. It is, for sure. San Diego. <laughs> 
the vitamin K dose that you'll get is just enough to make sure you're getting your daily requirement. It's not the dose that's been studied to have any impact on bones. And even then, that data is kind of fuzzy. You know, I kind of go to the capitalistic nature of this country all the time. If it really worked, they would probably charge a million dollars for it and it would be a prescription, you know, and that's kind of how I, I feel about it. So um, there's uh, one other thing I want to touch on with vitamin K real quick. Um, there's a lot of vitamin K and vitamin D combos and people just like, oh, I need calcium with my magnesium to help with the absorption. They think that vitamin K and vitamin D have this synergistic effect and that has not been shown to be a thing. The only thing is, is that vitamin K helps bones, vitamin D helps bones. That's it. That's as far as it goes. There is no other real, real connection between the two. So you can take vitamin K, you can take vitamin D, but you don't need to take them at the same time. You don't need to take them in the same pill. That's just a, a little ranty uh, side piece. So um, one of the other things I like to talk about is strontium. Strontium is found in a lot of supplements. Do you even know what a strontium is? No, it's it not sounds a type fancy. Of, it's not a type of car. It's it, it, it's <laughs> a uh, it's a it's a mineral. Okay. And um, it's it's again a prescription in Europe it was strontium renolate. Okay, and it was used for osteoporosis. Uh, so the the wolves over here decided that they want to make uh, strontium citrate, uh, which is a different form of the mineral to help out uh, with bone health over here. Going to the point of um, the forms being different have a big difference in um, how they work in the body, and that was shown. Strontium citrate does nothing for bones, where the strontium renolate did have an effect on bones. If anything, the strontium was making your bones look better than they were. Strontium slightly larger, like a bigger beach ball than the calcium smaller beach ball. So when you would absorb it, it would take the place of calcium and it would just be a bigger beach ball, but it's, they're both filled with air. So, you know, with the calcium, at least it's more densely packed. Um, so strontium was making people's bones appear better than they actually were. And guess what happened with the strontium that was sold in Europe? It was taken from the market two years ago because of heart attack risks that were buried Ooh. by the, the company that was making it is what everybody's kind of saying. So so the idea of using strontium is, is wrong in a few ways. It's not the same form. The prescription form that was beneficial caused heart attacks. So strontium could be, you know, in the supplement form could have those same risks. We just don't know because it's not studied. And even if it did get into the bones, it just made the bones look better and actually didn't do anything for the bones themselves. Wow. So, Interesting, right? Yes. So let's do something uh, new because now we've talked about all the micronutrients. We've touched on um, some exercise, things that can help out with bone health. Let's try something new here. We talked about exercise. We talked about uh, micronutrients, all the things that we can do to help make our bones healthier throughout our lives. Uh, we have to talk about the medications, but instead of me, the pharmacy nerd kind of droning on, why don't we bring in an expert? I've got a friend mm -hmm. who works with an endocrinologist office. They see Ooh. 90 to 150,000 patients a year, and, and it's like a big, big practice. So I'm going to phone a friend, and I'm going to ask him about the myths and misinformation uh, around the medications, and then talk about a responsible, reasonable approach to the drugs, because that's really what a lot of people are looking for. They don't want to be over-medicated, and they don't want to take poisons that are going to hurt them. Right. So are the medications like that? Um, so let's go now to that and uh, we'll talk to Matt Stryker from Albany College of Pharmacy. Awesome. All right, I've phoned a friend. It's Dr. Matt Stryker, who's an assistant professor at Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. And you also work at the Albany Medical Center Division of Community Endocrinology, which is a big practice up in Albany, New York, where you guys treat people for osteoporosis. Is that correct? Correct. All yep. right. Wonderful. Thank you for coming today, Matt. We appreciate your insight here. And I've got a few practice-related questions, so I hope uh, you look forward to answering them. 
Sounds good. Thank you. So Matt, first let's talk about patients' um, uh, apprehension to try medications. A lot of people don't want to take medications when they don't have to. They feel, you know, big pharma is there poisoning them, giving them these drugs, and they're hearing all this horrible stuff. But, you know, you and I both know that not everybody needs medications. So, so why don't we talk about from your perspective with your expertise, like, uh, you know, what the decision-making process is to who gets drugs and, and who doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, I think it's always important to recognize that as pharmacists, as patients, providers as well, medical doctors, et cetera, we're not looking to put every patient on a medication every time they step in the door. So I think for osteoporosis, sometimes it can be more clear cut than other times, but uh, one hierarchy of approach, if you will, that we frequently utilize and work through is essentially the following. So first, is there a history of fractures? So fractures beget fractures, especially earlier on, similar yeah. to, to the way a heart attack begets a heart attack. So those patients we definitely deem high risk, and those would absolutely be candidates for some type of bone modifying or osteoporotic therapy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Thereafter, um, looking at a patient's T-scores, which is essentially a marker of uh, bone strength, if you will, is another good indicator. It's not the whole story, but it's a, it's a good chunk of the story to assess patient risk. So if those numbers are um, low and typically low is defined as less than equal to negative two and a half, that's probably another patient who's a little bit more clear cut for bone modifying therapy as well. And then we start to get to some of the more gray clinical scenarios. And this, I think, is is really where provider expertise and foresight comes in. So keeping in mind as well that providers have seen hopefully multiple patients, not just oneself with osteoporosis. It's not their first day in the job, yes. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So that that clinical expertise does come into play, especially with these more challenging cases. So for example, if a patient has low bone mass or osteopenia, so meaning there, so T-scores between negative one and negative two and a half, that's a little bit more challenging, but one thing that's important to recognize is that most of the fractures actually, especially in postmenopausal females, occur in that patient population. It's oh, not really? the patient Yeah, so surprisingly, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not the patient population with the really low T scores, the negative two and a half or lower. It's actually in the osteopenic patient population. So objectively, how can we quantify one's risk? There are risk assessment tools out there to help us do that one of them being the FRAX risk calculator. And there's thresholds that uh, providers can utilize to assess whether or not a patient's a candidate. But uh, aside from that, if a patient has perhaps osteopenic T-scores between the negative one, negative two and a half, but they don't meet those thresholds for treatment, if that patient is otherwise healthy, no family history, and minimal to no risk factors for uh, osteoporosis, so in other words, the patient's pretty active, not sedentary, not a smoker, you know, that, that's a patient I think we would just probably monitor going forward. So um, to summarize, summarize from a hierarchical approach, it would be fractures, low T-scores, moderate T-scores, if you will, but meeting those thresholds for the risk calculator, and then perhaps no treatment for those lower risk individuals. 
Okay. Well, that, I mean, that really clarifies it. It really kind of helps simplify the picture. You know, just because you're going to your doctor to get your bone mineral density doesn't, doesn't mean that they're going to put you on these medications. So that's, exactly. a, that's a really good thing for people to know. And, and especially the, the biggest take home, I think, is the idea that the fractures don't happen when you're severe. They happen when you're, you know, just crossing those, those lines into the osteopenia range. So that's an important thing for people to remember is that all of this is serious, you know, because like, as you said, fracture begets fracture. So if you've fractured once and then say, you make it five, 10 years, and now you're 75, 80, and you've already had that fracturist that puts you in a different category. So it's important to remember all of this. That's great. So thank you. Matt, let's talk about a lot of the misinformation surrounding bone building drug therapy. I think this is the most frequent thing that I deal with when we talk to people about calcium supplementation and building better bones. They're afraid of the drugs because of all the misinformation. So what I did is I spent some time Googling, just like a patient would, hitting the, the intranets, and I found some stuff, and I want you to kind of comment on them and tell me- sure. Sure. You know, what's real and what's not? Because, you know, you and I as clinicians, we know that uh, the, the proof is in the pudding and the, the devil's in the details. So there may be a study, but that study may be kind of garbage and there may not be a lot of information there. So let's talk about a couple of things if that's okay. So yeah. first and foremost, this one was one person was pushing hard against this idea of micro cracks, that you're going to take these drugs like Fosamax or Reclast, and then you're bones, instead of getting stronger, they're going to get these little mi minuscule cracks in them. And then you're going to basically be like Samuel L. Jackson in that glass movie, you know? <laughs> so, so, uh, so tell me about that. What, what do you think people should know about that information? Yeah, absolutely. So micro cracks essentially are one theorized proponent suggesting a, a contribution, if you will, to this um, rare but serious side effect called these atypical femoral fractures. So I give you a medication for osteoporosis. You don't think that it'll increase your risk for fractures. Right. Rightfully, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And rightfully so, you think it would decrease your risk. So one of the concerns theoretically is, is that with long-term use of these class of medications, so your alendronate, your abandronate, et cetera, um, you're going to uh, impair normal bone remodeling. So just a quick side note, Bio 101, from a bone building standpoint, you have your osteoclasts or your bone chewers that break down bone. Yep. And then you have your osteoblast cells, which are your bone builders that build bone. Now, you may think chewers are bad, but remodeling, uh, in other words, breaking down and then building back up, it's a natural process. It's kind of the yin and yang for the body, if you will. Yeah. If I give you an agent like a bisphosphonate, it is going to prevent the chewers from working, which allows to, the builders to do their thing. But you get, uh, since you have that impaired chewing ability, you're not going to be able to get rid of, for lack of a better term, crappy bone that might have been gotten rid of by the osteoclast. So with that impaired bone turnover and lack of osteoclast assistance, if you will, or the chewers, Long-term, you can really inhibit that bone remodeling, which is one proposed mechanism thought to contribute to the microcrack phenomena. So if we had to distill this down into kind of one thought, really, it yeah. really gets back to the idea of duration of bisphosphonate therapy and whether or not patients are a candidate for bisphosphonate um, holidays, if you will, because these medications with increased duration, especially from the atypical femoral fracture standpoint, can increase the risk for these side effects, albeit extremely rare, but duration dependent. So for a relatively low risk patient who's been stable, if not seen improvements in their bone mineral density, T-scores are actually improving slightly, no fractures. That might be a patient that after, depending on the route of administration, uh, we consider discontinuing therapy after perhaps three to five years. 
And it's not that the medication is no longer on board because it will last a while, but we're stopping to actively give you the medication. But if you're the opposite patient, you know, you've had some fractures on therapy, perhaps your bone mineral density might be going the wrong way. You know, we really need to stop and reevaluate. And if there's no other secondary causes, that patient's probably not the best patient to stop therapy for. So again, a theorized mechanism responsible for, in part, the atypical fractures, which again, are extremely rare. Well, um, how rare? I mean, because it sounds kind of scary if you're not a practitioner. I hear you saying, oh yeah, you can definitely still get microcracks and you can even get fractures when you're on therapy. So like how rare is something like that? Sure. So um, unfortunately, I don't have a hard number to nail down. It's, it's likely less than 1%, but mm-hmm. because these phenomena or these side effects are so rare, Clinical trials are oftentimes where we get these prevalence rates or the percentage rates. And since this is such a small snapshot in time, we can't hammer down the actual incidence or prevalence of these side effects. But based on the data that we currently have, it's likely less than 1% when being used for postmenopausal osteoporosis. Gotcha. So it's like a super duper rare thing. I guess the way to put it is that most practitioners don't even consider a side effect likely unless it's like 2% or more really. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the idea here is that because of how the drug works, there are some people that are getting these really weird fractures, even though they're on these therapies. And it could be because of how the drug works and how it affects turnover. But that's not a very, very likely thing. In fact, most people that take it get this tremendous benefit from the medication. So so it's not that the microcracks necessarily are fake news. It's just that they're mostly not clinically relevant. And your doctor's probably watching for that, I would imagine, right? It's one of those things that can be challenging to monitor for, but I think from a patient education standpoint, the best thing that any provider can do as far as empowering the patient would be to have, um, tell the patient to say, hey, you know what, if you experience any thigh pain or, or groin pain, give me a call because that might be suggestive of a typical femoral fracture and we could do imaging studies to assess for that. So that would probably be the biggest thing to monitor for an educated patient about is just thigh or groin pain um, if they're on therapy. Right. And that's one of the package inserts. That's another thing I was going to bring up to the package insert side effects that everybody goes to and says, oh my goodness, uh, this is going to cause this problem, which is muscle skeletal pain. And so we can see that if you do have that pain, then yes, it might be uh, indicative of something serious and we need to stop the therapy, but that doesn't mean that everybody gets that or everybody's going to have that problem. So then here's another one I'll throw at you. So there's uh, somebody that said on the internet here that those drugs deplete your body of calcium calcium and magnesium. So why, why would they say that? So kind of back to that mechanism that we had talked about previously with agents such as the bisphosphonates or even denosumab or brand name Prolia. Mechanistically, we had said that they're going to inhibit survival function, et cetera, of those bone chewing cells. Well, within our bodies, in the absence of those medications, the bones can serve as a reservoir for various minerals, including calcium and magnesium. In the osteoclasts help take that out of the bones if need be, right? So mm-hmm. let's say it's winter, you're not going outside a lot, you're not getting enough vitamin D, your body can flip on a switch um, and essentially send some signals to the bones that says, hey, chewers, we need some more calcium, can you give us some? And in the osteoclasts or the chewers can dump that calcium into the bloodstream until there's enough there. So giving the, the bisphosphonate or the prolia impairs that function. But the biggest thing to recognize is that A, before starting therapy and hopefully periodically thereafter, we're checking your serum calcium because we don't want to risk that low 
Right. Additionally, too, we want to make sure you have adequate minerals on board, such as calcium, to help facilitate the process of bone building, preventing fractures as well. So ideally, if patients can get enough calcium and vitamin D from their diet, that'd be great but considering supplementation as well. So yes, they can increase the risk for hypocalcemia if not adequately monitored and managed both from a patient and a provider standpoint. Right. So it's kind of like, hey, this could be harmful if you don't do it right. And that's pretty much the warning. I got you. All right, cool. So let's keep going. I've got one. I've got so many of these. So I'm not even going to mention this website because they don't deserve any attention. (laughs) but, But they're basically saying the end of bisphosphonates bombshell study proves they're ineffective. And this was actually from a British medical journal study that said that bisphosphonates and bone drugs don't really do anything for bone health. What's the consensus around that and the uh, people that know more than I do about this stuff? Sure. So I think I'm familiar with the study that you're referring to from that journal. And essentially, you know, I think it's important to obviously be careful with what you read online and blogs. And, you know, I think it's great that there's freedom of speech. However, be careful with the interpretation of others. You don't have to sugarcoat it. You can just say (laughs) that it's BS. It's fine. My listeners are okay with it. They're used to saying that. Anyway, you have to to be more political than I do. Yeah, go ahead. All right. (laughs) But really what that study was looking at is essentially, are we over-diagnosing hip fractures? And if so, what are we looking at as far as outcomes with our current therapies relating to treatment of hip fractures? Taking a step back from a background standpoint, the majority of fractures that are occurring in patients with osteoporosis tend to be vertebral fractures. So thinking about that from an intervention standpoint, the low-hanging fruit is going to be reducing the risk for vertebral fractures because numerically those are the most plentiful. However, it's not to dismiss the concerns around hip fractures because we know those can be associated with an increased risk of morbidity and mortality as well. So Looking at the data for our current available therapies, the way the medications work, they tend to favor, generally speaking, bone building within the vertebral column and to a lesser extent just based on what cells are going on, different types of tissue within the hip. But it's not to say that our current available therapies, including bisphosphonates, do not reduce the risk of hip fracture. They absolutely do reduce that risk, albeit to a slightly lesser extent than they would in the the vertebral. But keep in mind as well, back to that original statistic I had mentioned, if vertebral fractures are more frequent, it's going to be easier to show reductions in risk there. However, if we're looking to show reductions in hip fractures, you're going to be waiting a long time because those types of outcomes would require very long trials, like years and years in multiple thousands and thousands of patients, which from a practicality standpoint uh, is not likely to be a clinical trial that will be undertaken. So I definitely disagree with that statement. I think there is utility for bisphosphonates in terms of reducing hip fractures. Um, and just, you know, kind of get back to the, the caveat, just be careful with what you read out there. Yeah, no kidding. So I think I think like what I'm really picking up from you here as somebody that's an experienced clinician in this area is that, again, the details of what is really going on here versus what's being reported in the scientific media, what people are grabbing onto, that's a big, big difference. And and what, what I tell my patients is that we all need medication sometimes. And it's not that everybody needs them and, and we're hot and heavy and we want to put people on drugs. Just the opposite. Most pharmacists like you and I are taught to take people off of drugs and only when it's appropriate. So I think you've done a good job here, Matt. Really, um, I hope the big thing that people are hearing is that pharmacists, 
doctors. They definitely know their stuff here, know the details, and they're looking at people on an individual basis using the data as best as they can to make the best decisions for you. So while some of these claims may be real, they may not be relevant. And uh, I think that's an important thing to remember. So don't fear the medicines, especially because we have some clarity around what they do and and what they don't do. So Matt, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. I really, really appreciate your insight. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So thank you, Matt. Um, That's hopefully very enlightening for you, Dana. I'm sure you've learned uh, so much from that. The summary is that there are basically two different types of supplements that you can buy when it comes to bone health. There are the isolates, so calcium by itself, vitamin D by itself, vitamin K by itself. And then there are the comprehensive bone support formulas where they put all the nutrients in there together. And the, the biggest take home you should have from this is what is the form? What is the dose? So a lot of the times in those comprehensive formulas, or even in those isolate formulas, they'll give you calcium, but they'll give you the wrong form. They'll put other bone building uh, nutrients like silica in there, but it won't even be nearly enough. They'll have vitamin K, but it's not, not a high enough dose. So, or they'll put vitamin D in it and then it won't be as absorbable. So when you look at these products, these are the considerations that you have to, uh, you know, have top of mind. So you're not getting misled about the product that you're getting. So does that help you? I hope that helps you. We can summarize and, and we can uh, uh, have this information on the, uh, the website as well. So you can see like some of our recommendations around this. But really what I'd like to stress is that there are two good times to plant a tree now and 20 years ago, right? Nice. So if today isn't <laughs> 20 years ago, um, we can start doing things now and we should. So calcium supplementation can be beneficial, but it's not going to do what we think it is. It's not going to make our bone density better, especially if we're already in osteopenia, osteoporosis range. We may have too severe of a case for any of the lifestyle modifications to actually have an impact. So we have to remember that we have to manage our own individual risks in a responsible manner. So if we're going to optimize our wellness, bone health has to be a priority and prevention is a key. Ensure you're getting enough calcium, preferably from your diet, Vitamin D is very important, and there's lots of other bone-building nutrients that come from healthy foods. You can supplement, but do so with only the proper forms, and don't overdose, of course, right? And so consider the dose and how much you're getting, because that leads to too many issues. Do the lunges, squats, weight-bearing stuff, all of that, but prevention will only go so far. And as my buddy Matt said, medications are needed for people, and we shouldn't fear them. Uh, We can use them responsibly, and uh, there are so many different options now. You know, all these different drugs exist, so we can find one that is the best fit for you based on your particular situation. And really, like, the recommendations about all these diseases are for a population, but we have to talk about what's right for you. What are your risks? What are your habits? And what are your needs? So, uh, Dana, I'm going to leave you with another pun. Mm-hmm. Ready? Get cracking <laughs> so your bones aren't cracking when you're 70. Oh, God. Thank you, Dana. <laughs> sure thing, buddy. Sure thing, buddy.